Amen. You need a Bible this morning, and our passage is Exodus 32. Exodus 32. We have three more Sundays in the book of Exodus. We'll finish up on Easter Sunday. We've got a lot to cover this morning, so we're just going to jump right in. There's some notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. We'll talk about some of the background to this passage as we build up to the big idea. We'll start with this. The events of Exodus 32 took place before the free will offering for the tabernacle in Exodus 35. And I just mentioned this because of the verses we covered last week. Last week, we sort of skipped around. We look at Exodus 25 and Exodus 35. In Exodus 25, God begins to give Moses instructions about collecting an offering and what he's to do with that offering and building the tabernacle. Then we jump forward to Exodus 35, where they actually take the offering and they begin construction. And we skipped what we're going to talk about this morning, as well as a few other things. And I just want you to understand that at this point, Exodus 32, Moses is receiving the instructions about what to do with this offering that he collects, but he hasn't started construction on the tabernacle just yet. Again, just for the context, I want you to know that after the covenant confirmation meal, we talked about that last week, it's Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders, and they go up and they have this meal with the Lord. Moses left Aaron in charge while he and Joshua remained on the mountain. It is sort of interesting, if you go back and look at Exodus 24, Moses actually left Aaron and her in charge, two men he put in charge. As you read about this intermediary period where Moses is up on the mountain, we don't really read about her, but we read about Aaron. We're going to talk about that this morning. One last detail to square away. I just want to remind you of this. You know this if you were here last week. The Hebrews had gold to make a golden calf because they had plundered the Egyptians. And we talked about last week that plundering was not... Uh, aggravated armed robbery. It wasn't like what pirates might do in, in stealing or pillaging or any of that. It was just simply going to their neighbor, asking for their valuable clothing, asking for their jewelry, and the Lord burdened the Egyptians and put it on their hearts that they just handed it over. And the Hebrews walked out with the wealth of Egypt. The big idea this morning is really simple. The Hebrews were idolaters at heart, and they were in desperate need of a mediator idolaters at heart, and they were in desperate need of a mediator. This sin of idolatry that comes out here in Exodus 32, you could say is the one great sin that plagues the Hebrew people for the rest of their existence as you read through the Old Testament. And there's lots of things that they do that are rotten, and God is patient with them, and he puts up with them, but this is the one sin they just can't seem to get rid of, and it's the one sin that eventually sends them into exile. There's also this idea of a mediator, and we'll end up this morning seeing how that idea points us forward to Jesus. So the big idea, the Hebrews were idolaters at heart, and they were in desperate need of a mediator. Now just take the text, and we're going to read Exodus 32, and it's a long chapter. I know it's a long chapter, but we're going to read the whole chapter, so you follow along as I read. The Word of God says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, 
We do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham... Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. 
When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son, his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because, of the, because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we read this story that's familiar to many of us, and we see the wickedness of these people on display. Father, I pray that we do not approach your word looking down our nose at the foolish Hebrews. I pray that we approach your word seeing ourselves on display in this text our tendency toward idolatry, our tendency to make something else or someone else more important than you. Father, I pray that we see our sin clearly, and beyond that, I pray that we see Jesus as the answer to our sin problem. We see Moses in this role as a mediator. Help us to understand how Moses is pointing us forward to Jesus. Father, as we take the Lord's Supper in a few moments, we do it acknowledging our sin. Father, we don't want to pretend like we're worthy to participate this morning. We acknowledge that we need a mediator, and that mediator is Jesus. Father, be honored as we take time to think about your word. Give us wisdom. Send your spirit to bring conviction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been on a number of international mission trips in my life. And as I thought about this story of idolatry, I thought about some of the examples of idolatry that I've seen in different places that I've been able to visit. One of the places that came to mind was in Beijing. We went to visit the Forbidden City. And uh, it's largely a governmental facility, a governmental structure, a, a large palace, if you will. But there are shrines there in different parts of the compound, of the complex. There are Buddhist shrines and there are Taoist shrines where sacrifices are offered and incense is burned. I thought about Quito, Ecuador, the picture on the top right. 
Ecuador lies on the equator, and they have a place called the Middle of the World Monument. The equator runs right through this spot, and you can see where the, the ancient peoples there thought that they had figured out the middle of the world, and they were really, really close. They weren't off by much. They've got this monument, and I've seen people standing in a circle worshiping the sun right beside this monument. I thought about middle of nowhere Africa, and that's not an actual picture I took, but it looks like some of the places I've been where I've been with a missionary who said that building over there that looked not much different than that one, that building right over there is where the witch doctor lives. And if you get sick, that's where you bring your sacrifice, and they'll offer a sacrifice to this god or to this goddess or to this spirit or to this whatever. And then I thought about the United States, where our idolatry doesn't look like it looks in other places, but make no mistake about it, it's very real and very present where we worship sports teams, we worship our children and their quote-unquote success, we worship money, careers, we worship an image of what we want other people to think about ourselves and we do our best to portray that on social media so that everything looks just right and everyone likes us. We worship boyfriends or girlfriends or spouses and we put them up in places where they'll never be able to deliver in making us happy and fulfilled and content. You can pick the form of idolatry or to go back to a previous sermon series, the little G God, but we are idolaters at heart. Idolatry is a universal human activity. I just want to start with a couple of quotes from guys who are dead. Okay? I'm going to give you one quote from John Calvin. It's one of his most famous statements ever. And I'm going to give you one quote from A.W. Pink, who we've talked about before on Sunday mornings. Here's what John Calvin says about idolatry. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. He's saying there's just something in us where we just constantly look for something or someone We just have it deep within our hearts. It comes natural to all of us. We don't have to be taught how to be idolaters. It's part of our nature. Pink adds this, explaining what idolatry might look like in our lives. He says, an idol, quote unquote an idol, is anything which displaces God in my heart. It may be something which is quite harmless in itself, yet it absorbs me. If it be given the first place in my affections and thoughts, it becomes an idol. In Exodus 32, you have idolatry on full display. And the text is right. It is a great sin. I just want to begin by acknowledging the fact that just because your idolatry doesn't look like you bowing down in front of a golden cow statue doesn't make it any less of a great sin. It's a great sin. We're going to look at this passage. We're going to think about what does this passage teach us about sin, idolatry in particular. And then we're going to move on and say, what does it teach us about salvation? And I just want to be honest with you up front. I think that this is my favorite story in the whole book of Exodus. 
If I just had to pick one and say that's my favorite story, I think this is the one that I would pick. I think there are more interesting things in this passage that I wish we had time to talk about than any other chapter in Exodus. And I just made a list of all the things as I started studying and making notes and writing things down. I had all of this stuff I wanted to talk about, and we don't have time. We can't talk about all of it. And so I just, here's the scrap pile. We could spend a lot of time talking about what does it mean when the text says that God relented. When Moses talks to God and it says he, he changes how he's going to act towards these people. How does that fit with the sovereignty of God and the omniscience of God? And it fits. That's another discussion we could have. We could talk about when did the Levites actually slaughter all these people and why did they do it? We move from the part of the passage where everyone chuckled when Aaron gives his excuse. And it's sort of lighthearted almost. Right into slaughter. Nobody laughed about those verses. We could talk about this idea that God has a book. What does it mean that God has a book and somebody might get blotted out or somebody might be written in this book? We could trace that through Scripture. We could even look later in Israel's history. There's a wicked king named Jeroboam who sets up idols and he quotes Aaron. He quotes Exodus here where they set up these idols and they say, Here, Israel, these are your gods. He refers back to this story, not in a good way. We could even spend time just talking about the plague. What does it mean at the end where this plague comes among the people and thousands of these people fall dead? All of those things interesting to discuss, interesting to study. Our focus is going to be on the big picture. What does this passage teach me about sin, particularly idolatry, particularly the idolatry that might be a problem in my life? And secondly, what does it teach me about salvation? So here we go. What does Exodus 32 teach us about sin? Number one, sin often begins in the heart when we are frustrated with God's timing. Begins in the heart when we are frustrated with God's timing. At this point in the story, I know it's kind of hard to to keep track when you're reading the Bible of the timeline and everything. Let me just fill you in. The Hebrews are about 120 days out of Egypt. You may think that's a long time, you may think that's a short time, but they're about 120 days out from slavery. Then we read about Moses, and he goes up on the mountain, and he spends 40 days. So they've been out for 120. Now Moses has been up on this mountain for 40, and the text begins with these words. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, that's when they gathered themselves to Aaron. And they said, up make us gods who will go before us. Look, I don't think very many people just set out in life to openly defy God through idolatry. Especially in the American context. Where we're not intentionally setting up a physical idol that you can see and that we we may go bow down before. Maybe it's children or maybe it's work or maybe it's money or whatever it may be. I think usually we slide into idolatry. And it's a pretty natural slide, and it's an easy slide. I just don't think many people wake up today and say, you know, I think I'm going to make my children my idol. And I'm just going to defy the Lord, and I'm going to worship them instead of God. I don't think many of us do that. I think we slide into it. And I think many times we slide into it when we're frustrated with God's timing, when we feel like, God, why haven't you done this in my life yet? Why haven't you come through like I think that you should come through? Why haven't you fixed this problem that I have in my life? I've been asking you and praying to you to fix it over and over, and nothing has happened. These people are frustrated. 
40 days and there's been no progress. They're not moving anywhere. They're not getting any new information. Nothing really exciting's happened. They're just waiting. And they're frustrated. And out of that frustration, sin begins to grow in their hearts. I want you to read with me up on the screen what Stephen says about this story in Acts chapter 7. He says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside. And look at this. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt. In their hearts. Before they ever had an idol problem, they had a heart problem. That's true for you. Before you ever have a problem with an idol or a little G God in your life, you have a problem with your heart. What does Exodus 32 teach us about sin? Number two, any idolatry involves a transgression of the first three commandments. Any idolatry involves a transgression of the first three commandments. The idea of a transgression is that you've crossed a boundary. God's drawn the line in the sand and you've intentionally crossed it. So we talked about the the commandments and we had the little hand signs for all the Ten Commandments. I just want you to think about the first three. Commandment number one, you will have no other gods beside me. Well, in this passage, the people come to Aaron and they say, make us gods. Make them for us. Commandment number two, you will not make an idol. You will not bow down to them or serve them. And the people come and they willingly, at Aaron's command, hand over their gold so that he can make an idol. Command number three, you will use God's name with respect. You will not take the Lord's name in vain. These people not only ask Aaron to make them gods, then hand their gold over so that he can make the gods, but then when the gods are made, did you notice what they call the calf? The Lord. All caps. Yahweh. They take the Lord's name and they apply it to a statue of a bull. Anytime in your life where you have an issue of idolatry, you have already crossed or transgressed the first three commandments. No other gods besides the one true God. No idols. And always use his name with respect. Don't ever take it in vain. The people have crossed all three. What does it teach us about sin? Number three, we have a tendency to go back to our old ways of thinking and living. We all have this tendency to go back. Why'd they pick a bull? They could have made a statue of any number of things. Why did they pick a bull? Some commentators will point out to you that they're shepherds. So they have bulls. It's familiar to them. Other commentators will point out that in Egypt there are a number of deities represented by cows or bulls, both and or. There are a number of Egyptian deities that when they're pictured in hieroglyphs, maybe they don't take the form of a bull, but they have the horns of a bull. There are even places in ancient Egypt you could go to see a real live bull that the Egyptians believed was inhabited, or you could say incarnated, by one of their gods. I think the reason they chose a bull is it was familiar. It was just part of everyday life. It was part of who they used to be and how they used to think back in Egypt, and they just went back to that. And you need to understand, when you think about idolatry in your life and battling sin in your life and dealing with sin in your life, you have this same tendency. 
Maybe you were saved as an adult, saved late in life. And maybe you've wrestled with the tendency to want to go back to who you used to be. Or maybe you were saved as a child, saved at a very young age. But as you look back over your life as a follower of Jesus, you see, I make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. I fall into the same patterns of sin over and over and over again. We all have this tendency to go back. Number four, idolatry always leads to more sin. It always leads to more sin. In seminary, I I had a guy named Dwayne Garrett. Dr. Garrett was my Old Testament professor, and he's written a commentary on the book of Exodus. And I like his quote. He's kind of an understated guy, and he said, It's difficult for anyone to hold the line at a little idolatry. You're not going to hold the line. Idolatry is a cancer, and it's always going to grow, and it's always going to spread, and it's going to lead you into other sins. You see that with Aaron in this passage, right? Aaron falls into this trap. Verse 5, after he's made the idol, he decides to make an altar. It's not just enough to have the idol. Now we need an altar. And it's not just enough to have the altar. Then he proclaims a festival. We're going to have a special day of worship for this false god. It grows. Verse 6 says they rose up to play. Rose up to play. All sorts of Bible commentators arguing and debating. What does it mean they rose up to play? I don't think it means they had a kickball game out in the field. Most commentators say that that's a, a bad connotation. Most commentators, or many, maybe I should say many commentators, think that it even has a sexual connotation. Paul picks up on that in 1 Corinthians 10. He talks about this very instance, and he said some of the people fell in to sexual immorality. I don't think the picture here is Moses walking down from the mountain and it's one giant keg party. Everyone's taking their clothes off. I don't think that's the picture. But it's bad. And it's loud enough that when Moses and his assistant Joshua are up on the mountain, they can hear it from up the mountain. And Joshua's initial thought is, there's a fight going on down at the foot of the mountain. They rose up to play. Look what it says in Exodus 32, verse 25. Moses saw that the people had broken loose. Back in Oklahoma, we lived in a rural area, and the phrase would be, the cows are out. They've broken loose. you got to get them back in. And the idea here is that the people have no restraint It maybe started with a little idolatry, but now it's led to all sorts of other stuff. And there's no longer a restraint around these people. Last idea is this. Our excuses are embarrassingly pathetic. And this is where your laughter comes in. Aaron's take on the whole thing is shocking. Remember, this is the first high priest of Israel speaking. Verse 22, I'm going to give you some of my paraphrase here. Verse 22, Aaron told his brother to chill out. Don't let your anger burn hot. That's like, just pipe down, Moses. Aaron says to him in uh, verse 24, you know the people. You know how these people are. Verse 24, he refuses to own it with this classic line, They gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. 
And you've read the story. You know that verse 4 says he fashioned it with a tool. You know that verse 5 says he built it and he proclaimed the festival. You know that at the very end there's one more reminder, verse 35, that says he made it. I wonder if you have this kind of perspective on your sin. I mean, when God tells the story, Aaron is the leading man. He gets the award, lead actor. When Aaron tells the story, he's like an extra over offset. And I wonder if that's how you think about your sin. If you would not have the audacity to say I'm perfect or I'm sinless or this is not a problem for me, but if you were really pressed on your idolatry, if you would say things like, you just don't understand. You don't understand what it's like to be married to that person or you don't understand what it's like to have my job or you don't understand the stress that I'm under or you don't know what it's like to have the history that I have, the family history. I mean, we do really well at explaining our sin away and rationalizing our sin and trying to justify our sin. And I just want you to understand, when you do that, when I do that, we sound every bit as silly as Aaron. Saying, I just threw it in and it popped out. This is a million miles away from David in Psalm 51. Do you remember how David confessed his sin in Psalm 51? He did it like this. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's a man who sinned greatly to lift a phrase out of Exodus 32. He sinned a great sin and when the light bulb went off he realized it. He confessed it. It's before me. I can't deny it. I can't pretend that it's not there. I can't make excuses for it. I have sinned against you, God, Our excuses are pathetic. Look, this is a bad scene. It's really bad. It's so bad that when Moses comes down, he destroys two quote-unquote sacred objects. The first is the Ten Commandments. And the text goes at great lengths to tell you that these tablets were written by God. They are the single most valuable thing on the whole earth at that moment. And Moses takes them and he shatters them at the foot of the mountain. I thought about that, that scene this week. Uh, made me think about college basketball. Made me think about March Madness. Somebody asked me this morning, are you, are you happy this morning? Your team won. And I don't know if you're like me, but when it comes to March Madness, when your team wins, it's more like relief than happiness. You just feel like, oh, they're not going to make fun of me in the morning. We're still in it. We survived. And you get anxious about it. And I watched the game last night with Brooke, and I said, I hate watching these games in the tournament. When you're a Kansas fan, you know we're going to lose to somebody. Some nobody's going to beat us or, you know, whatever. And some of you guys don't care about Kansas, but you're pulling for Texas Tech, and your Raiders are winning, and you're excited, but hey, you know tech. They're going to disappoint you. They're going to, it's coming. It's coming. And look, I looked over here, and my preacher's sitting over here from growing up, and it could be worse. You could be a Baylor fan, and you could not even be in the tournament this year. You could be in that other tournament. So March Madness comes around. We all get excited. We love basketball. And it made me think this week about something that centers around the team that I root for, the Kansas Jayhawks. In 2010, 
a man named David Booth went to an auction and he paid $4.3 million for the original rules to basketball. James Naismith typed them out, the original rules, and he sat down and he invented the game. And you see up at the top, it's just big enough you can make it out. It was originally two words, not basketball, but basketball. We're going to play basketball. And I read through the rules this week. I'd read them before. It's interesting, when you read the rules, there is no rule about dribbling. Originally, you were not allowed to dribble. You could only pass, and then you could stand still. And it's interesting that his... His students who played the game, they sort of got creative. You know, students will do this. They try to bend the rules. And they started passing to themselves. I'm going to pass it to myself. I'm going to pass it, and I'm going to run over here and catch it. And he said, well, that's creative enough. I'm going to give you that. And then dribbling, entered basketball. So there you go. You really needed to know that. $4.3 million for a couple of pieces of paper. Donated them to the University of Kansas. Got a part of the basketball arena named after him, the Booth Family Basketball Museum. And you can go, they've got them in a nice case, and you can see the original rules of basketball. And if you're a basketball fan, you look at that and you say, what a great treasure. What a great piece of history. Moses walks down the mountain with something more valuable than Dr. Naismith's rules. These tablets engraved on the front and the back with the ten words, the ten commandments. And he sees what's happened at the bottom and his anger burns hot. Before it was the Lord's anger burning hot. Now his anger is burning hot. And he takes them and he just smashes them on the ground. I don't think it was just Moses losing it. I don't think it was Moses having a temper tantrum. I think it was Moses giving the people a visible picture of what they had done. They had completely broken the covenant between them and the Lord. They'd shattered it. And he takes the most valuable object on the earth at that moment and he just breaks it to pieces. And then he sets his eyes on that calf statue. And the text is kind of interesting. It, it says that he burned it and he ground it up. And scholars talk about what, how did he do that? What was it made of? What went into it? Look, he destroys it to the point where he scatters the dust in the water and the people drink it. And you say, was that like your mom when she catches you smoking a pack of cigarettes? She makes you eat them? Is that what he's doing? Not exactly. He's completely desecrating this idol making it pass through the digestive system of the people and ensuring in the process that no one's going to repurpose the calf idol for the tabernacle that's about to be built. We're not just going to take this and melt it down and then make the covering for the ark with this gold. We're going to desecrate it completely. So He destroys the Ten Commandments. He smashes them on the ground and he destroys this calf idol. And it's so bad that God essentially disowns the people. I want you to look at Exodus 32, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. Your people. The ones you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Up to this point in Exodus, these have been God's people. You're my people. I've chosen you. I've come to save you. I've brought you out of slavery so that you could belong to me. And now he looks at Moses and he says, 
your people. And you say, well, maybe he's just, maybe he's playing off what the, the people said earlier. Earlier in the chapter, the people said, we don't know about this Moses who brought us up. They don't say the Lord brought us up. They say Moses brought us up. So maybe God's just playing off of that. Or maybe this is like the parent, when the child gets in trouble, they say, your child has done this. It's not my child that would do that. It's your child got in trouble. Maybe. But as my wife likes to remind me, jokes are only funny when there's a little bit of truth to them. And the reality is that these people had a covenant with the Lord. God spoke the words, the ten words, and the people heard them. God said, these are the terms. This is what you do. And you remember what the people said? We'll do it. Whatever you tell us to do, we'll do it. We're in 110%. We'll keep all the terms perfectly. And they have this agreement. And before the ink is even dry on the paper, or you could say before the finger just barely finished carving them out in the stone, They've broken them. No longer his people. Because the agreement said, you're my people and this is what my people do. And they said, we'll do it 100%. And they haven't done it. They've separated themselves from the Lord. Thankfully, and here's where I really love this story. I love because it exposes our sin and our idolatry. We're not all that different than Aaron and the people like we prefer to think. But I also like the story because it doesn't stop with sin and it points us to salvation. So we'll end with this. What does Exodus 32 teach us about salvation? Salvation, number one, is rooted in God's grace, His glory, and His faithfulness. This is really good news for us. Salvation is rooted not in a decision that we make, not in how obedient we can be, not in how lovable we are, but our salvation is built on the foundation of God's grace and God's glory and God's faithfulness. Look in the text, and I just want you to see this. We're going to be looking at, at verse 11 and following. We're going to talk about Moses imploring the Lord. When you read these verses, when I read these verses, it makes me think of Abraham. Do you remember when the Lord came to Abraham and said, I'm going to go down to this city and I'm going to blow up Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham intercedes for the people. Do you remember that? They have this sort of bargaining session where Abraham says, well, what if there's righteous people there? What if there's 50 righteous or 40 righteous or 20 righteous or 5 righteous? And there's this back and forth. He intercedes for the people of Sodom. I just want you to understand this is a different type of intercession. Abraham assumed that there might be some innocent people in Sodom. And what Moses is about to say, he knows that the people are guilty. He doesn't think that anyone's innocent. In Abraham's intercession, what he asked God to do was to spare the innocent or to spare the righteous. And what Moses is about to do, he's going to ask the Lord to spare the guilty. Look what it says. He implored the Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? That's God's grace. You saved these people. You did it. It was your power. 
in your grace, in your goodness to them, and you saved them. Secondly, his glory. Why should the Egyptians say that God only brought them out, verse 12, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? The Egyptians are going to believe a lie about you. It refers to God's glory or he appeals to God's glory. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. You made them a promise, and you always keep your promises. He doesn't appeal to how good the people are. He doesn't say, oh, it's not that bad. He doesn't say, oh, just get over it. He doesn't say, oh, they'll do better next time. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This whole thing is not based on them. It's based on your grace to them, and it's based on the glory that you want to receive, and it's based on the faithfulness that you exhibit when you make a promise. Listen, when we take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, that's our hope. Our hope is not to sit in this room and to sort of navel gaze and say, oh, have I been good enough this last week to take the Lord's Supper? You haven't. You never will. That's not what gives us confidence before the Lord. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, God is a gracious God who has given us the opposite of what we deserve. And he cares about his glory. And so he saved a people to bring glory to himself. And he is faithful to his promise. When he said he'll forgive us through Christ, we take the body, we take the blood. We remember he will be faithful to his promises. Look, if you're struggling with questions of assurance and your salvation and where am I at with the Lord, don't try to conjure up something within yourself and say, I need to be better. Go back and do what Moses did. Remind yourself, God is gracious. God cares about his glory. He will be faithful to keep the promises that he makes to his people. Secondly, as sinners, we need an intercessor, or you could say a mediator, who's willing to die for his people. I know that you know the story. You've read it this morning. You've probably read it before. I just want you to look at verse 32. Where does Moses get the idea that God might cut him off? Where does that come from? Because you haven't really seen it clearly in the Bible up to this point. Maybe you could look back to the story of Abraham and Isaac and the Lord provides the ram for the sacrifice and Isaac lives and the sacrifice dies. I think more immediately, Moses has been on the mountain talking to God about the tabernacle. Getting the instructions. This is how you collect the offering. This is what you're going to do. These are the things you're going to build. You're going to put it all together. And what's going to happen at that tabernacle? The people are going to offer sacrifices. All kinds of sacrifices for sin, for wickedness, for the nation, for individuals. All of that is on Moses' mind. He's got this idea as he comes down the mountain. We're going to kill these sacrifices and somehow the sacrifice dies and we live. And he doesn't have it all worked out in his mind, but he's got it worked out enough to know sinful people need a sinless sacrifice to die as a substitute. And so he says to God, God, if you can't just forgive them, maybe I could take their place. Maybe you kill me instead. God had already told him, I'm going to wipe the people out and start over with you. And Moses thinks, well, maybe we could just do the reverse. Maybe you could wipe me out and continue with the people. The only problem with the plan is Moses. 
And that brings us to the last idea. At the cross, Jesus did what Moses offered to do. Moses, as a sinner, was not able to take the place of anyone. Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, was able to stand in the gap and be cut off, to be blotted out of the book, so to speak, so that we could be forgiven. He dies as this sinless, substitutionary sacrifice that gives us the hope of forgiveness and gives us the hope of eternity in heaven, gives us the hope of a a relationship with God based on faith in who Jesus is and what He's done on our behalf. And all of that is what we're celebrating when we take the Lord's Supper this morning. We don't gather together as God's people to say, God, this is how good we've been for you. We come to God honestly, like David in Psalm 51 saying, my sin is ever before me. I have sinned against you and you only. But my hope is in your grace and in your desire to uphold your glory and your faithfulness to your promises. And my faith rests on the fact that Jesus did for me what Moses suggested he might do for the people back in Exodus 32. He died in my place. He was cut off so that I could live.